Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Secret Stories from the Underground. How is everybody doing? We hope you are well. We are doing fine ourselves in case anybody was wondering. Probably not though. Today on the show we do have our guest Larry Jorgensen on the podcast. Larry, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your last name. That's just a thing we do here on this show. Um, Larry is the author of the book Coke Trails, which follows the story of Coca-Cola, not cocaine. So if you were hoping for cocaine, eh, you got to settle for Coca-Cola. Everybody loves Coca-Cola. It's got a great long legacy and Larry in his book explains the history of it all. So please enjoy this interview with Larry, but then also go buy his book if you're a huge Coca-Cola fanatic because you won't be disappointed. Um, real quick, I do have some things to uh, promote for my buddies. Yeah, believe it or not, I do have friends. Um, real quick, where is it? Okay, my buddy Jaron Dorsey, who has been on the podcast and will be on again very soon. He will be performing at the Backline Saturday, Saturday February 26th. Show starts at 7 o'clock. It is the CWO Comedy World Order show. Uh, it's got Monty Scott, Carmela Anderson, Jaron Dorsey as a headliner, and Cameron Edwards uh, will also be on that show. Great group of people. Please get out to the back line. Uh, February, 20, February 26th and uh, support that show. Sorry, I have stumbled through this plug, but um, it's in very small writing and I'm blind. So I do apologize. Get out, though, and support my buddy Jaron Dorsey. Very funny guy. Always bringing killer shows to the back line. And this is just another one that you're not going to want to miss out on. So uh, get out to the back line. February 26th, 7 p.m. Go support some awesome, awesome Omaha comics. And that's enough of my bullshit for the day. Here is our interview with Larry. Larry, are you there? Hey, we're here. Can you hear me? I sure can. Uh, Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Awesome. Dean's here with me. How you doing, Larry? I'm doing good, guy. Where, where uh, Where are you guys located? We're in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. What about yourself? I'm down in the bayous of Louisiana. Oh, nice. nice. I imagine you got a little snow up there in Omaha. I imagine we got a little bit more than you got down there. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) If you got more than us, the Gators are pissed, Larry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what do you guys do? What, what, what What are we up to here? Well, we're going to pick your brain about your life here, Larry. Are you okay with that? Sure, whatever. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we'd like to talk to you about your book. Okay. All right. Are are you okay with that? Absolutely. Awesome. So give us a little little backstory about how this came about. Well, the the book is called The Coca-Cola Trail and how it came about. I'm, a, I'm an old, what they call an old news dog, and I do a lot of freelance writing. I was going to do a freelance travel story on two Coca-Cola museums, one in Vicksburg, Mississippi, the other one not too far away, 
in Monroe, Louisiana. Well, by the time I got to the second one, I had the opportunity to meet with the descendants of the original Coca-Cola bottling family, and they encouraged me to look deeper. They said, you know, this story is all over the country, and as of now, the only books that have ever been written about Coca-Cola are books about Coca-Cola Corporate Atlanta, Georgia. And there's bottlers all over the country. There's stories all over the country. It really needs a book. So to the charge, I went, and we have the Coca-Cola Trail, which really, it's you know, it's kind of a, a travel and a history thing. Um, the book tells you where you can go and what you're going to see. And when you get there, it's going to tell you the history of the Coca-Cola uh, activities that took place there. The place now might not be a Coca-Cola place anymore. It, you know, it might be a a uh, a brew pub. You know, it might be a little shopping mall, uh, entertainment center, museum, whatever. And uh, we've we've really looked at places where you could go that were Coca-Cola, and you can go now and still enjoy what what the places have become you know we're not talking about coca-cola buildings that are full of lawyers or accountants or something okay. we're, we're talking about fun places you know places where bands could play you know a lot we got a lot of entertainment centers that have uh, evolved from former coca-cola bottling plants so it, it's a it's a great trip and uh, encourage anybody to 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 explore the coca-cola trail very cool. So are you are you just a big fan of Coca-Cola yourself? Like why what got you interested in, in doing this? Well, you know, there there are a lot of Coca-Cola collectors. In fact, it's probably the most collected brand in the world. I am not one of those. And and as far as Coca-Cola as a beverage, I enjoy it on occasion. And I have to admit I've recently uh become slightly addicted to their new Coca-Cola coffee. Um, that's a pretty neat drink if you haven't tried it. It's in those uh, tall, thin cans that they're making now and uh, comes in three flavors. And no, I don't work for Coca-Cola, but it's good. <laughs> okay. So that's, uh, you know, that I enjoy that. But again, I'm not the kind of guy that gets up in the morning and says, where's my Coca-Cola coffee? Uh, my Coca-Cola beverage to get my morning going. That's, you know, I'm still the old reliable, give me a strong cup of coffee. So, <laughs> to meet the family, what was uh, their opinion on you writing the book? Well, very, very, very supportive because the fact that it has not been done before and it really does tell the, the story of why Coca-Cola became as big as it did. You know, it, can you imagine having a brand that people pay money to get the territory to be able to sell your brand of product? And it just took off from there. And not only because you had people promoting it and trying to sell it and bottle it and make it, but it actually is a good product. So, you know, here, here we've got all these, these would-be entrepreneurs. They see a good product. 
and they decide, yeah, that we want to get involved. And that that's really how it took off. So consequently, the families really encouraged me. The um, you know, they said, Hey, no one's done this before. And and there aren't as many Coca-Cola uh, families left anymore. A lot of them, you know, the we're down to third and fourth generations, and the kids have said, ah, let's cash in our chips. We're getting out of here, you know. So there's been a lot of consolidation. Uh, the ones that are left are fantastic stories. I mean, how many people really realize that Coca-Cola was first bottled in Vicksburg, Mississippi, not in Atlanta, Georgia? They were bottling it for five years in Vicksburg before Coca-Cola finally said, yeah, I think it's okay. Go ahead and bottle it if you want to, you know. So, And the strange thing, the next time you drink a bottle of Coca-Cola and you see it all over the place, you know, it's interesting to realize that Coca-Cola back in uh, what would that have been, 1899, they didn't think bottling was a very good idea. And they finally sold the rights, the exclusive rights to bottle Coca-Cola throughout the United States for $1. And, and, the, and the guy who owned Coca-Cola was making the syrup at that time. Um, you know, he, he told these two gentlemen from Chattanooga who bought the rights to bottle, he said, you know, this is really a dumb idea. I don't really support it, but... I think he just wanted to get rid of them. So he sold them the rights for a dollar. And he told them as they got on the train to go back to Chattanooga, if this doesn't work, don't come crying back to me about it. You know? Well, exactly. guess what? It sort of worked, didn't it? It really worked. It was a, they got, they got extremely, uh, I don't want to say lucky, opportunist, I guess, and uh, bought the rights, except they didn't get the rights for Mississippi, because we got to remember they were they were bottling it already in this little soda shop in Vicksburg, Mississippi. So they got the rest of the country for a dollar, and where they made their money, you know, they, they, these two guys go back to Chattanooga, and you guys have heard the story about you know the dog chasing the car. What do you do when you catch it? Well, they go back to, to Chattanooga, <laughs> you know, and they're like. We got the rights to bottle Coca-Cola all over the United States. Between the two of them, they got $1,500. Like, what? how are we going to do this? They started a little bottling plant, you know, and that, that's not the answer. The answer comes in what we now call franchising. They said, wait a minute. We've got the rights to bottle Coca-Cola. Let's start selling pieces of our rights. So, you know, if you're in Omaha, Nebraska, and you want a bottle of Coca-Cola, they'll send you a, they'll sell you a 50-mile radius of, of Omaha, and you can bottle Coca-Cola. But the real catch to it, you pay your $1,500, and you get 50 miles around Omaha. But the thing is, when you bottle, of course, you have to use Coca-Cola syrup to create the beverage. Well, these guys who sold you the territory, every time you buy a gallon of Coca-Cola syrup, which comes from Atlanta, Georgia, every time you do that, 
the two guys back in Chattanooga get a commission on that sale. So they're doing rather well by not bottling. They're doing rather well by just selling the rights to bottle. And that really is how it took off. It's a fascinating story. These, these guys, I mean, let's face it, this is 1900, 1899, 1900. You know, things were pretty crude then. Your, uh, your bottling was done by, by hand and by foot power, one bottle at a time. Um, we, you know, there's stories of when they'd carbonate in some of these places, they'd carbonate the drink and, and they'd put too much carbonation and the bottles would explode. And, you know, yeah. I mean, it was a battle. Now, when they're giving these franchises or the rights away for these guys to bottle, do you know if there was any sort of a training process or did you just pay money and you're on your own? I think there was a, a minimal trading process. Basically, it was, this is how we think you should do it. I mean, let's face it, they were new at it too. But they were sharing what little they had learned. The important thing that they were, <clears throat> quote, training was, you better use our syrup. You know, that was the, the key to the whole thing. Um, you know, it uh, it's interesting too. We talk about bottling. You know, bottling became a real a real issue. The the Coca Cola bottle that we have all learned uh, to recognize uh, didn't exist in the 1900s. So kind of it was just bottles, whatever you could find to put the stuff in. You know, the old the old bottles that went pop that had the uh, the, the cap that uh, went down inside and so forth. So what happened as the beverage became popular? There was a lot of knockoffs. I mean, there was Chiro Cola. There was Coca-Cola spelled with K's. I mean, everybody was bottling a cola drink. And it was confusing. You'd walk into the store and you'd see something that said cola and it was in a bottle. You'd think it was Coca-Cola. So you'd buy it. Well, Coca-Cola said, wait a minute. This has got to stop. So they went to the bottle manufacturers in the United States. And they said, we want a Coca-Cola bottle, our bottle, patented bottle, and that'll be it. So the, the, they challenged the bottle makers. They said, somebody is going to get the rights to do this. Let's have some samples. So there were six companies that created what they thought would be the Coca-Cola bottle. And there was a big competition, and the, the bottlers all met in Atlanta. And they picked one bottle, which was made by the Root Glass Company in Terre Haute, Indiana. And they said, that's the bottle. That's the one we want. And it, it grew from there. And that bottle became patented, licensed for, for many years. Only the Root Glass Company in, in uh, Terre Haute could make it. Finally, they started... Uh, for a fee, obviously, letting other glass companies make it. And then finally, Coca-Cola said, wait a minute, we're going to, we want the rights to it. They bought the patent and Coca-Cola corporate then acquired the rights to the Coca-Cola bottle. But you know, we were talking about the collectors, guys. Coca-Cola bottle collecting is a big deal. Yeah. You know, especially because... You know, in the old days, the 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 place that bottled the Coke, 
they'd have their names on the bottom of the bottle. You know, Keokuk, Omaha, wherever it was, it would be it would be embossed on the bottom of the bottle. Well, consequently, the smaller the bottler, the more valuable that bottle became. But the real kick to it was when they had that competition, each of the six bottlers, bottle makers brought five bottles to the competition. After the winner was selected, the uh, they were told all the prototypes must be destroyed. Um, Coca-Cola corporate took one of the winning bottles and put it into the archives and supposedly everything was else was destroyed. Well, guess what? One escaped, so to speak. And about two years ago, the surviving bottle from that original competition showed up at an estate auction in California. And that bottle sold for over $150,000. Wow. And the reason we know it was the bottle is because on the bottom of it, it had the date 1905. That's when the competition was held. But Coca-Cola never started using the bottle until 1906. So, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I can remember hauling the bottles back for two cents each. So <laughs> that's a slight markup there of 150000 So... Were there any photographs taken of the other, the prototypes that weren't selected? I, I guess not. I tried to find some, and uh, maybe they were so embarrassed that they lost, they just wanted to get out of it. I never <laughs> did find any. But, you know, the original Coca-Cola bottle um, had a bigger, uh, I guess you'd call it a little bulb or a, a, in the middle of it. And it had to be redesigned because the bottling machines we're having a problem with that. So they, they slimmed it down. They put it on a diet, and they slimmed down the middle a little bit. And then that's what, that's what came out is the bottle we know now. But it's, a, it's, you know, another story of the bottle, as long as we're talking about bottles, the, the original Coca-Cola bottle had a slight green to it. You know, and they, they kept that for a long time. And that happened because the root bottling company of Terre Haute, Indiana, had a, uh, a sand quarry about 50 miles away where they'd get the sand to produce the bottles. Well, as it turned out, that sand had some minerals, including copper in it, which ultimately created the green tint to the Coca-Cola bottle. Well, Coca-Cola liked that tint so much that as other glass companies were allowed to make the bottle, they told them, if, the, if your sand doesn't have the minerals, put it in there because we want a green bottle. And, and that's, yeah. how, that's how the bottle got green, just by happenstance. Now, when they're uh, mixing that in there, though, is that can that be dangerous for people? Have yeah. copper in your bottle? Well, it, it, it's the, the copper's in the sand. And okay. it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a, as I understand it, and I'm not into, into that uh, type of, of, of uh, science, I guess you'd call it, but the copper's in the sand. And of course the sand is mixed 
with uh, to create the glass. So I presume that it's you know it must be safe, or they wouldn't uh, you know, they wouldn't be doing it. You know, one one of the classic things I'm surprised you guys haven't asked because I get asked this all the time. Uh, I'm sure it's on our list. <laughs> Coke or cola. Is there cocaine? Was there ever yeah. cocaine? Right? Yeah, we're going to ask that. <laughs> how many times have we heard, oh, it was cocaine? Well, that, you know, I defend this, and I've done it enough times I could do it in my sleep, probably do do it in my sleep. The original formula, the Coca-Cola formula, is made from the cola nut and the coca leaf. Now, yes, the coca leaf is then processed in other ways to make cocaine. It was not processed that way to make Coca-Cola. Totally different thing. We're using the leaf uh, to make Coca-Cola. It's not being used to make cocaine. But it became such a thing that there was a slight trace that could be traced back to the coca leaf that in turn was similar to what you would find in cocaine. And it was such a slight thing, but, you know, the, the federal government was investigating and, uh, you know, all, there was just all this controversy. There's cocaine. So Asa Candler, who owned the Coca-Cola bottling company and owned the syrup at that time, spent literally thousands and thousands of dollars, hired pharmacists, chemists, whatever, to make sure that that formula would contain not even the slightest hint of anything that would resemble cocaine. So, you know, it never did have, quote, cocaine. Yes, it still has a derivative of the coca leaf, but uh, you'd go a long way to 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 want to get a high out of that for sure. <laughs> now, would would it be enough to maybe say make you fail a drug test back in the day? Anything like that? No, I don't. Th I don't think so. They said it was it was so slight. Even the even the government with their 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 great uh, agency, whichever was investigating at that time, finally admitted that th there was nothing there addictive. Um, it was just simply the flavor of the coca leaf. Gotcha. So when they moved, uh, or, or when, yeah, they moved over to Atlanta, was there any, um, problems there, I guess, with the, with the people of Mississippi? Did that make them angry? Well, no, actually what happened, you see, the Coca-Cola syrup was always made in Atlanta. The John Pemberton, who invented the formula, and, and John was a uh, Civil War veteran who had been wounded in the war, very seriously wounded, had a great deal of pain, and he was a pharmacist after the war in Columbus, Georgia, not too far from Atlanta. And he concocted the formula for the Coca-Cola syrup as a pain reliever, you know what they say, medicinal purposes. And he ultimately moved to Atlanta, Georgia, took the formula with him and decided this is working and started selling it. Where else would you sell medicine? But in a drugstore. 
you know, so he took it to the drugstore. He said, now you mix this syrup with some carbonated water and it'll cure pain. Well, it also turned out to be a pretty delicious painkiller. And it went, <laughs> it went from there. So it, it was never, you know, it was first bottled in uh, Vicksburg because the, uh, the gentleman, the, his name was J uh, Joe Beatenarn. Um, he had a, a soda fountain and a drugstore, and he was a wholesale distributor for the Coca-Cola syrup. He was buying the, the, the gallon jugs, using it in his store, and selling them, selling the syrup to other stores. And Coca-Cola was quite fine with that. That's really all they wanted to sell our syrup. But uh, Joe decided, no, th this was 1895. And, you know, it was a bit of a, a task to get into town in those days. And he thought, if I can put this in bottles, I can take it to the people in the country. So he, he really, he had it going on for five years before Coca-Cola finally said, yeah, go ahead and do it, you know. He did send a couple cases to, uh, to Asa Candler, his first two cases after he bottled it. He sent them to him to let him know what he was doing. And, uh, you know, Asa replied back, yeah, it's okay. And, and, and Joe was a little upset because Asa never sent the bottles back. You know, and bottles in those days were pretty precious. So uh, ultimately... Coca-Cola, the bottling of Coca-Cola in Atlanta did not take place because of corporate Coca-Cola. We go back to the two guys from Chattanooga who, you know, had the, the rights. And uh, at one point, they decided to go their separate ways and they divided the country in half. Well, the, the one uh, partner who got the Southern half, went to Atlanta, and he actually started Coca-Cola bottling in Atlanta. He was getting the syrup from Coca-Cola corporate. He had his own little bottling thing. It was called Dixie bottling, Dixie Coca-Cola bottling. And in no way, other than the fact that he was getting the syrup from corporate, was it related to Coca-Cola corporate. So that's how it started. You know, a, another interesting thing in marketing, and, you know, you guys are in the world of marketing. Um, you remember the um, Pepsi challenge to Coca-Cola? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you know what, what that caused? Do you remember Coca-Cola came out about that same, shortly after that, with what they called the new Coke, which bombed. Yeah. Yes, I remember New Coke. <laughs> well, well, what happened? You know, the Pepsi was doing this Pepsi challenge, and they were winning. People would go up. There'd be two little unmarked paper cups or whatever, you know, and they'd sample, and, oh, we like this one. Well, guess what? It's Pepsi. And it was driving Pepsi, uh, Coca-Cola crazy. So they, they started checking it out, and they said, ah, Pepsi is sweeter. That's the answer. So they created the new Coca-Cola, and they made it sweeter. Well, you know what? The consumers didn't like it. I, I've had I've had uh, you know Coca-Cola bottlers families tell me that when that uh, when the new Coke came out, 
you know, little old ladies would, would see the Coke delivery man in the grocery store and threaten him, say, I want my Coca-Cola back. You know, they finally they finally went back to the original formula. Well, the, if you think about it, it's so simple. If you if there's two glasses in front of you and one is sweeter than the other, then your first reaction will be, yeah, I like that sweet one. But go ahead and drink a bottle of it. You know, what are you really going to go for? You, you know, then you go for flavor and and not necessarily do you want it sweet all the way to the bottom. And that's, Coke didn't stop to think about that. They just wanted it to be, Coke had to be sweeter because Pepsi's sweeter. Well, that didn't work. But they spent a lot of money and two years trying to convince the American consumer that the new Coke What'd they say? Coke is it. <clears throat> that wasn't it. Now, since you put out this book, Larry, have you thought about doing any other brands or, you know, kind of with what you did with this, but, you know, well, Pepsi by chance? I've, I've got two things going on right now. Actually, we've done a second Coca-Cola book. And okay. if you if you go to my website, they're both there. The second book is simply called Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. And it's got, it's got you know, what happened um, after I put the first book out, which, you know, thank goodness it's been very successful. I've had people contact me and say, read your book. It was a great book, but you forgot about and they'd give me these ideas. Well, you know, there's a, a place in Starkville or there's whatever. So I started a little box and I'd put these little notes in there. I called my forgetabouts. Well, I, pretty soon I had enough forgetabouts to do another book. So that, that in fact, is the second Coca-Cola book. And they're, they're, you know, they're both doing well. It's the Coca-Cola trail I returned to. But to specifically answer your question, I have been encouraged to do a book, and I've done research on it, although I'm doing another book now, too, um, that will simply be a book about called, you know, RC Cola and Moon Pie. I mean, what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about Omaha, Nebraska, but down here in the South, you know, it's co it, it, it used to be, and it still is to some extent, RC Cola and Moon Pie. That's a tradition. They called that the working, the working man's lunch. So I am doing research on each of those individually, and then how did they ever get together, you know? So that that's one. Now, closer to home to you guys, um, I've got a book that will be out this spring um, that is a Great Lakes shipwreck story. Oh, really? And very cool. And Very, no, yeah, we're actually originally from Michigan, so yeah. That's I really, cool. Well, this this, yep. this is a as they say, this is a Uper story. I don't know what part of Michigan you were from. You were we you were, were trolls. Yeah, you were <laughs> a troll, right? Well, this is this is a Uper story, but it, this is the most amazing, barely known shipwreck in the history of Great Lakes shipwrecks. And to give you a little on it. Uh, it happened in 1926. It was the the uh, ship was called the City of Bangor, as in Bangor, Maine, and it was loaded 
with 240-some brand-new 1927 Chryslers headed from Detroit going to Duluth. Well, it got up to the uh, Keweenaw Peninsula. You know, that's that piece that sticks into Lake Superior. And yeah. it, got, it got into a tremendous November storm, ended up being wrecked on a reef off of Copper Harbor, which that's about as far north as you can go in Michigan. And the, the story is not only about the boat being wrecked, <clears throat> but the story is about how the crewmen were rescued and how they darn near froze to death because they finally got on shore and then they wandered around in the snow in uh, the Keweenaw Peninsula for two days, you know, and, and darn near froze to death. Uh, but it's also a story about the cars. The cars were rescued and how they got them off of that boat through the snow along Lake Superior to Copper Harbor, where they sat for two months until they could plow the road open from Copper Harbor to Calumet. Walter Chrysler wanted his cars back, you know, get them back to Detroit. <laughs> so they had, you know, they get 300 inches of snow up there. I mean, you know, you guys in Nebraska, you think it snows there. How about Upper Michigan, guys? You know, well, that's, that's what everybody tells us here is, uh, oh, it's got to be better than living in Michigan. And yeah, it is, but. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, the story, it, it just, it goes in so many directions. And these cars get rescued, so to speak. They end up in Calumet. Uh, they get put on a, a freight train back to Detroit so Walter could get them fixed up again. But some of them don't go back. And there's one of them that to this day is sitting in a museum in Eagle Harbor. And that car had over 200,000 miles on it before it got to the museum. And in our research, we found there were several others that didn't make it back to Detroit. So the, the, and how they, what happened to them, how they got rescued, how they got, you know, the photos are fantastic. I've been very fortunate that um, some great photos were taken of the cars being rescued and so forth. And we've dug a lot up. We've talked to people who were, you know, relatives of, um, and it's that'll be the next book, and that'll be out this spring. We're, we're just about done writing that one, and you know, hopefully, it'll be the city of Bangor will become as well known as the Edmund Fitzgerald. Maybe you guys could create. A, maybe you guys could create a song for the. Yeah, we could. Yeah, we <laughs> get to work on writing a song for it. Bangor, you know, I mean. Look at all the look at all the money that was made on the on the record of the you know the Edmund Fitzgerald. So there you go, guys. <laughs> so speaking of like the the photography end of things, I, I'm looking at your book uh, right now, and you you got some really cool photos in here. How did you go about getting your photos for the Coke book? And also, did you have to? Was it really hard to get it okay to use some of these? Um, well, first of all, as far as getting it okayed, the only thing I had to worry about getting okayed 
was the book itself, and Coca-Cola did license me to make the book. Now, the pictures, it varied from picture to picture. I would get them sometimes from uh, descendants of families. I would find them uh, in libraries. I would find them in, as I call them, hysterical associations, historical associations. <laughs> uh, you know, old newspaper articles, um, just wherever I could find them. And if I, if I ended up going to a place where they were um, archived, for example, like a historical society, usually you would either pay a fee or you would pay a fee and then credit where you found the photos. Now, a lot of the photos are in what you know, is known as public domain. Uh, so no credit, no fee was necessary. And a lot of them, like I say, were, were family photos that they graciously shared with me. So it was kind of a kind of a mixture, kind of a of a hunt to find photos. But I and you'll see in the in the in the shipwreck book, I think photos are so important to a book. You know, to just pick up a book and read about it, why not have the photos too? So I, I spend a lot of time uh, getting the photos and, and and making sure they're as, as accurate as possible. That's that's part of the search. Yeah, as somebody that's dyslexic, I appreciate photos and books too. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Larry. You know, it, it's interesting. I had a guy in California right after the first book came out, and I think he was probably a Coca-Cola collector or at least an enthusiast. He sent me an email, and he said, I am planning my summer vacation around many of the sites that you have listed in the book. So I said, doggone, a travel book. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, and you know, the, uh, people are doing stuff like that. Like that's becoming kind of a, a trend now that people are doing these kind of little theme vacations and stuff like that, that it's not crazy expensive. It's just going and sightseeing and, and things. Uh, so I definitely could see where your book would have some added appeal to people looking for something like that. Well, and what's neat is those places that are along the trail. Um, like, I'll give you a good example, Highway 66, right? Everybody's going to go on a trip. They're going to go by car for history. They got to go down Highway 66. I'll bet you there must be at least close to a dozen places on Highway 66 that are selling my book. There's one of them uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, the town, I think it's called Acadia, that's called Pop's Soda Ranch. And it's right along Highway 66. They've got a huge soda bottle outside in front of the place. And I mean, I get about every six months, it's like, send me 50 more books, you know. Um, so it, it's a good mixture because people who are looking for that history. People that are going into country stores that see an old Coca-Cola sign hanging on the wall for sale, guess what? They're going to buy the book, too. So it, it oh, yeah. kind of goes hand in hand, and I appreciate it. Have you done any book signings with this? Oh, yeah. yeah, I've done a lot of them. And and the, I think one of the, the first ones I did was, in fact, in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And not only uh, for the bookstore there, but I had two relatives uh, 
obviously descendants of the old Joe Biedenhard, uh, show up and they told me stories that uh, of family and of Coca-Cola bottling. So, it, yeah, I, I, I've done a fair amount of book signings. And I will do this if if someone orders the book from the website and tells me when they order it, I'll, I'll sign it off to them, you know. Uh, so it's uh, it's fun. I like to go to book sightings. I've I've gone uh, to some of the uh, Coca Cola collectors have their annual convention, which by the way last year was in Baton Rouge. Uh, next year it's going to be in Green Bay. So I'll go to that, uh, try to sell a few books, sign a few books, you know, and uh, just anytime I get a chance to talk about it. Uh, I'm, as you guys can tell, I like to talk about it. <laughs> um, you know, I got to ask you real quick. What is cola pepper jelly? Well, that that's something <laughs> I have. <laughs> I've got a friend who has a, a a jelly. They make jellies, and primarily they make a lot of pepper jelly. And so I thought, you know, this would be a great thing as a Christmas present. Um, can you make, I went to him and I said, can you make a cola pepper jelly? Oh, yeah, we can do that with cola flavor. I said, no, not cola flavor. If I get the Coca-Cola syrup, the actual syrup, can you use that instead of the sugar? Yeah, we sure, no problem. <laughs> so now <laughs> I, I had a, how, how many cases do you want? I've still got some, you know. I <laughs> I had it made, and and it went over so well that we got another order, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. It was made sim simply made to start with as a Christmas gift to people who you know like the book, people that I know, whatever, and it just took off. So I say took off. It's not you know we're not talking uh, you know um, smuckers or anything here, but <laughs> it's. <laughs> It's done. It's done rather well, and it was simply a a fun thing that I did. So it's it's made of um, jalapeno pepper, uh, Coca Cola syrup, not cola flavoring. It's got the real syrup in it, which, by the way, you can buy. You can. You, it comes in a big bag, and the bags in a box. Um, usually, places like uh, Sam's Club or Costco or that will have it or can get it for you. Um, and there's people that make, I guess, cookies and stuff with it. I don't know. But uh, so it's got that. And, uh, you know, that's basically a degree. It's a little, what, what do they call it, pectin to, to keep it solid. And and away you go. It's Coca-Cola pepper jelly. So is it spicy? Is it spicy? No, it's got yeah. a little, it's got a little kick to it. But it's it's Coca-Cola flavor. With a with a bit of a kick, I guess is, you know, and I'll tell you one thing, and and we we actually did. I don't know if it's on what you were looking at, but I had a um, a food person who is at LSU um, do some recipes, and we put together a little recipe book uh, for using the Coca Cola pepper jelly, and this one of the favorite things is. Over the holidays, they'll take the pepper jelly and put it on cream cheese. 
and then take that combination and put it on your favorite cracker. And that is that is some good. Sounds good. I cook with jalapeno just in general. I use it probably more than I do. My kids make fun of me that I put it on everything. So I, if I can figure out a way to put some jalapeno or jalapeno juice in there, yeah, that's good for me. So it's a it's a fun product, and you know you got to have a little fun in life. Uh, what the heck? I mean, the book the book turned out to be fun. I never thought I would would do a book on Coca Cola, and I never realized the the power of the name Coca Cola. I mean, just like you guys, bless your heart. I said. Coca-Cola, and you want to talk to me. You know, I had a guy call me. I swear, this is the truth. He contacted me and called me. He emailed me from Dubai. He said, I've got a big radio station here. We are listened to, and will you do a Coca-Cola trail interview? I said, in Dubai? (laughs) That man emailed me back. He said, people here love Coca-Cola. So I did an interview with a radio station in Dubai. I've done several um, with England, you know, in the UK there. Uh, Sometimes they're a little bit harder to do because they they talk with that that bloody accent, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes I have to stop and catch up with them. But anyhow, it's fun. There's a a guy that... uh, sends me information fairly often from Canada. And and the Coca-Cola collectors in Canada are avid. You know, it's just, it's pretty neat. If you, if you Google uh, Coca-Cola collectors, you'll find that they've got collector organizations all over the, all over the world, you know, and obviously all over the United States. And, and these people are avid. I mean, if it's got a Coca-Cola logo on it, they're collecting it. That's for sure. Uh, I, I had a friend whose mom collected any of the Santa or polar bear stuff. Had to have it. <laughs> oh, the oh, Coca-Cola yeah. Christmas bottles. Yeah. Yes, them were huge back when I remember them when I was a kid. Them, yeah. Everybody yeah. wanted them. You know, Coca-Cola was, was pretty smart and jumping on. And I don't think they realized how smart they were. They just did it. But to to, to tag on, to I say they kidnapped Santa Claus. You know, <laughs> I mean, when you think Christmas, it, there's so many Coca-Cola memories. Um, you know, the, the Santa that we all know, and you, you guys probably know this story, that, that Santa image that is now common uh, for everyone was created by the artist Coca-Cola. You know, he he took what was a very crude uh, Santa in those days, in the 1920s, and made him a happy, jolly fellow. And consequently, that's the Santa we know. But, you know, you look at, um, we've just gone through Christmas. How about the Coca-Cola trucks? They're all over the place. These big semis all decorated. Oh, you know, yeah. or how about Charlie Brown's Christmas? <laughs> you know, nobody, everybody thought that was good, a dumb idea. I mean, even the, the, the network thought that this is not the way. You know, nobody will sponsor this. Well, guess what? Who else but Coca-Cola said, that's a winner. 
And Coca-Cola saved not only the Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, but they saved Charlie Brown's butt as well, you know. So, <laughs> so today, when you see Charlie Brown's Christmas, the Coca-Cola is the ones that made it really happen. It's, I, it's, I, about, about four weeks ago when I watched it here. With <laughs> so, so I got to ask the real controversial question here. Go ahead. What, what, what is better, Coca-Cola or RC? Well, you know, before I wrote the Coca-Cola book, because I'm a Yankee with a frustrated Southern desire, and that's why I moved here, um, I thought, well, if I'm going to be a Southerner, I have to drink RC Cola and, and have a moon pie. And you know what? RC is pretty good. I, I can't say it's better or worse. It's different. It's got a little bit of a different tang to it. And, uh, you know, I mean... Life's too short to just get hung up on one anything. You know, <laughs> um, try it. Try RC. I, you know, I've, I've talked to some people who, you know, it's just like, you guys are from Michigan. What's the number one ginger ale that is now Burners. owned? Which is <laughs> now owned by, I think, the people that own Dr. Pepper, if I'm not mistaken. You know, so, uh, you know, and I like it. I, I even now when I get up to the UP, although I, I don't think it tastes like it used to. Uh, you can bet I'm gonna I'm gonna find one. I'm gonna have some Burner's ginger ale. Um, it's just it's part of it's memories. You know the whole thing. Why do people collect beer cans? Not that the cans are worth that much. And not that the bottles are worth that much in Coca Cola. But it's the memory. It's a pleasant time in your life. You had a Coke, you had a RC Cola, you had a Pabst Blue Ribbon, whatever, you know. Um, it's you, you collect it because it's something good that happened. It brings back a good memory. Look at the fortune that people are spending on restoring Coca-Cola murals, Coca-Cola outdoor signs. Hey, again, you know, Michigan... Albany, in Michigan, they restored a sign that hangs over the Kalamazoo River that was on the side of a building that was about to collapse because of a flood. The city got together. The state of Michigan kicked in, I think, 25000 or something, and they raised $50,000 to restore a Coca-Cola sign. You know, and when you ask them why, because it's memories, it's part of our community, you know, and it goes on. I've, I've written about it in the second book and even to some extent in the first book, how communities would spend money, would raise funds to save a Coca-Cola sign. Now, you show me another brand. I don't think so. You know, yeah. you know, signs yeah. are... Signs are here today and gone next month. You know, it's crazy. It's it's just it's a memory. It's I talked to a a, a guy out in uh, North Branch, Minnesota. Now we're getting closer to home, guys. Uh, mm -hmm. North Branch, Minnesota. The city got together, got the money together to restore the Coca Cola mural that was on the side of an old historic building in North Branch. And and that's a little town. And they they really had to scrape together to get the community to come up with the money. But by golly, they did it. 
and they had a big ceremony and and uh, they're very proud of their Coca-Cola mural. So memories, just good. Me you know, what was it, two or three Christmases ago, the United States Post Office issued a Christmas set of stamps that had four different versions of Santa Claus. And those images were all images that were created by the Coca-Cola artist. You know, it's just, really? there's no end to it. They're everywhere. Oh, it, you know, it really is a brand that is a part of our culture here in America. It is. It really is. And, and again, you know, as, as an old news dog who didn't realize what he was getting into, all I can say is I am so thankful that, that Coca-Cola has the following it has because it has certainly made my book of interest to more people than I thought would ever read it. Yeah, that that loyalty got to be cool there. That yeah, just you know, because you put out a book about this, that there's so many people that are going to resonate with it and want to read it. You know that that's got to be a special feeling that a lot of authors really don't get because you know when you put this out that people are going to probably want to read it. And you know when you do any other book. It doesn't always have yeah. that built-in loyalty, you know. And that, that speaks a lot for Coke. It really does, you know, yeah, what they it, mean to people throughout the years. It does. And, and I, I'm starting to get a lot of pre-publishing um, information or requests on my Uper book, my, my shipwreck book. Uh, I, again, it, you know, it, it hits two markets. Not only the, the people who are fascinated by shipwrecks like the Edmund Fitzgerald and, and people who were fascinated by the Upper Peninsula. But now we've also got the vintage car people. You know, do you know? Oh, yeah. there, are, there are more vintage car collectors and more vintage car museums and clubs than there are Coca-Cola. You know, and here yeah. we've got the story of a 1927 Chrysler that was saved from a shipwreck. You know, I think this is going to be as almost as much fun as Coca-Cola. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to read that, too, because not only is it history about my home state there a little bit, but I think the story is, is really cool there, too, you know. And what you were saying about, you know, the, the cars, that is actually what I like so much about your Coca-Cola cover is the photo that you chose on that because not only is it a cool picture, but I like the cars in it too. Well, and if you look at page four uh, of the book, of the, I don't know if you got the book there or not, but on page four, we have the photo of the world's first Coca-Cola delivery man. And how do we know it was? Because it was in Vicksburg, Mississippi, where nobody else was bottling Coca-Cola in 1896. Here's this black gentleman with a wagon load pulled by a horse heading out of town with his Coca-Cola. That had to be the world's first Coca-Cola delivery man. And we've actually had that photo enhanced and... Uh, and copies of it made available because I, I've had so many people comment on it. I thought, okay, let's go ahead and reproduce it. We had a, a professional 
photographer enhance it, add a little color, you know, and sharpen up a little bit. But it is the world's first Coca-Cola delivery man. Another call. Yeah, no, I, I think you did a really great job with putting this together. You know, I think it's like, like we said, it's a great subject. I think you did a great job with putting the pictures together. Just the whole story. You did awesome. And it's a good, just fun. It's interesting in that, but it's, it's a good light, fun topic for somebody to get into and read. It's not a heavy, depressing read. Lord knows we've had enough depressing stuff going on in the world over the last few years. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you can take it a chapter at a time because the chapters may at some point relate back to a previous chapter, but it's not, you know, you can just take that chapter and say, okay, that's what it's all about. I'm going to, I'm going to read that one, you know, so it's, it's, it, it was truly turned out to be a fun project. I had no idea that's what was going to happen. Well, that's cool. Yeah, and you'll have to keep us posted, Larry, uh, on a release date for that other book because I'd, I'd like to read that. Oh, I'd love to, especially since you guys are, you know know about Michigan. And, and I, I'll tell you what, I, I, Michigan is a favorite place of mine. You can bet when the snow melts, this old Yankee is going to be headed back to the Upper Peninsula because I love that country. It's just fascinating. My first go-round in Upper Michigan was in 1965, six, yeah, six, no, 66, snowmobiling in Copper Harbor. Now, that was an interesting adventure. And we went from Copper Harbor to Green Bay in two days by snowmobile, in 1966 that was very uh, awesome <laughs> so yeah, yeah we'll, we'll talk we can we can talk about michigan and and shipwrecks and snow and all that good stuff yeah i spent a lot of time on the trails myself that was my favorite thing that's what i miss most about michigan actually is uh hitting the trails in the winter time on a snowmobile yeah it was good i, I can remember copper harbor in those days 66 you'd go up there and you know, there might be two dozen people in town living there, and most of the places were closed. I remember snowmobiling over the roofs of motels, you know, because they were closed. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's fast in the history. You see, my, you know, I said I'm an old news dog. I was news director at a TV station in Green Bay and fell in love with the Upper Peninsula, even before I snowmobiled there, because we used to go up and cover the copper country stories. You know, when when the when the copper mill, the copper mines closed down, and and all of that. You know, and so, and of course, now I don't know about you guys out there in Nebraska, but I still get my pasties shipped down here to Louisiana. <laughs> I got my grandma. Thank God my grandma's still alive. So I don't have to have them shipped. They're just homemade right in the kitchen still. But, uh, yep, just got to get grandma shipped yeah, out here. Yeah. Time time. And, and eventually, I am going to have to get a pasty guy. <laughs> well, mine come from Quinnisec outside Iron Mountain, a little place called the Pasty Oven. And, uh, yeah, when I see my supply getting low, I'm on the phone to the Pasty Oven. <laughs> yeah no it's funny that you know you, you know the food because you can mention that to a lot of people here in the midwest and they have no idea What's what you're that? talking they don't know what that is so 
Well, you know, down, down, I've, I've learned that, you know, foods are regional. You get down here in Louisiana, it's a whole nother game. And, and I'll tell you what, we are about to get into crawfish season. And if you've never been to a crawfish boil, you all brought yourself to Louisiana, we'll do one. Right on. There, of course, and right now it's Mardi Gras, so, you know, king cakes and all that commotion, Bloody Marys, and away we go. Ah, yes. Sold on Bloody Marys. <laughs> yeah, you, you had me sold at Bloody Marys, Larry. <laughs> so, you know, we, it, Lucy, I always say it, and I, I'm, a, I'm a Yankee. Well, you know what they, they say? On, I'm, a, I'm what they call a damn Yankee. You know, the, <laughs> the difference between a Yankee and a damn Yankee. A Yankee is somebody from up north, where a damn Yankee is somebody from up north who didn't go home. <laughs> but uh, when you when you end up putting your, I actually I, I was down here um, before Green Bay. I, I was raised in the North Country. Uh, ended up in TV down here in Shreveport. Fell in love with Louisiana and decided one day I'd come back. I think it was the late Louis Grizzard that when he moved back to. Atlanta said, going to nail his shoes to the ground. Well, I guess I've kind of done that too, but they're moccasins. <laughs> I slip out of them in the summer and head north. <laughs> no, uh, when you come back here too, we would love to talk to you actually about a little bit about your news career, if you wouldn't mind talking to us about that. We've never had anybody on here that's been in the news world, so... Yeah, we can do that anytime you want. I, I was lucky enough to be involved in in radio and TV, uh, you know, in the 60s, which was, that was fun times, you know. It got a little raucous. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're blowing up the campus in Madison. I was in Green Bay then, you know. And things oh, really? like that, You know, and so I... Uh, I, and I'll tell you what we get we get going on that. I can I can tell you some Vince Lombardi stories too, but we'll save that for the next trip. Oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. No, we're gonna have to do this again soon. Uh, Dean or I will shoot you some dates, and we'll we'll do this again soon. Because yeah, no, you got a whole nother group of things that we'd <laughs> like to talk to you about. So well, we'll, we'll uh, do it. we'll do it. I love to, as you can tell, I I, I like to talk. <laughs> Hey, that's what we like out of our guests. We we love it when our guests talk. So less work for us. So well, send your listeners to uh, the Coca Cola Trail dot com, and uh, they can probably find a book there of interest. Awesome. All right. Do you have anywhere else uh, that they can find you at, Larry? Here's that it. Yeah. Well, it's in a lot of stores. I'm not on Amazon, and I was for a while. But you know what? Amazon likes to make money, but the poor old authors don't get much. And I yeah. thought, you know, I thought I got a good product with a good recognizable name, you know. So I thought, the heck with Amazon. So I'm, I'm a one man show. I am the author, the marketing department, the shipping department to sweep the floors, you know, and, and that's it. And I enjoy it. Why? Why get into a you know, a big thing over something. It's, it's life's too short. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody please go over there and buy Larry's book for sure. And, uh, support him. And you said both of them books are on there, right, Larry? I'm sorry. What was the question? 
you, both of them books are on that website? Yeah, both of them. They're both there, and if you buy both of them, you get a special price, too. How about that? Oh, very nice. Perfect. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. <laughs> so. Awesome. But well, you, yeah, Larry, we'll get a hold of you uh, about coming back on here, and we'll get a date set up, and we'll have another conversation about your other side of life. <laughs> yeah, give me advance notice, and I'll dig out some some good stories, okay? Awesome. Yeah, well, we cool. appreciate it. Well, you have a great day, Larry. Best of luck with the sales of the book, and, uh, you know, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. For sure. You guys, try to stay warm out there in Nebraska. Take care. All right. All right. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry. Bye, bud.